0: Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by. Finding someone who shares your values in today's culture isn't easy. And being single around the holidays isn't easy either. That's why Catholic Singles created a website and app where single Catholics can meet and get to know each other that focuses on values, activities, and interests. For over two decades, Catholic Singles has been fostering deep relationships because your faith matters. Start today at catholicsingles.com. Ignatius Press is pleased to announce the first national book club created for Catholic schools. Ignatius Book Club for Catholic Schools was launched to support Catholic schools' dedication to forming the whole child, mind, body, and spirit. Ignatius Book Club for Schools partnered with leading publishers of children's literature to offer the best books and educational materials for all reading levels and interests. Head to ignatiusbookclub.com Slash podcast and find wholesome books that delight, inspire, and enrich. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic health ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.com. That's mycatholichealthcare.com. CMF Curo, healthcare fully alive.
1: The Dwight Morgan This is the fifth episode of my reading of an abridged version of Belloc's classic book. In the book, of course, he looks at the personalities behind the disaster which was the Protestant Revolution. In this chapter, he looks at the character of Thomas Cromwell, the brewer's son who rose to be the most powerful man in England, controlling King Henry VIII and becoming the mastermind behind the dissolution of the monasteries and the wholesale rape and pillage of the Catholic Church. Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell is one of those figures in history of which we may say that they are never presented in their full stature. He was a genius of the first order, and fortune allowed him to play a part of the first magnitude. He is the true creator of the English Reformation, and therefore of the general catastrophe which overwhelmed the secure and ancient civilization of Christendom in Europe. Yet, for a dozen men who could tell you a fair amount about his master, Henry Eighth, or about any of the other prominent figures of the time, there's barely one who could give you much more than the name of Thomas Cromwell, or perhaps add to it the fact that it was he who undertook the destruction of the English monasteries. What is still stranger, most people do not connect him with the other famous Cromwell, Oliver, though Oliver was his great-nephew. But there is a reason for that. It has always paid the official historians in England to pretend that Oliver Cromwell was a bluff, middle-class person, truly representative of the English people, and to conceal the fact that he was the cadet of an immensely wealthy family, one of the wealthiest in England, whose huge fortunes came entirely from the loot of the Catholic Church. What adds to one's estimate of Thomas Cromwell's intellectual stature and one's corresponding detestation of the harm he proved capable of doing is the fact that he was the sole architect of his own fortunes. Alone of the principal Reformation figures, he started from nothing. No birth, no money, no classical or clerical education, no friends, nothing. He was the son of a petty beer housekeeper in Putney, When he had grown famous and powerful, stories grew up about him, of course, as they always will about such people, but when you look into them you find that the only certain fact is what I have just stated, his coming from a beer shop on the south bank of the Thames, a little above London. He went off as a vagabond in early youth, and the very little we know about him seems to show that he took what was then the best chance for an adventurous tramp, military service. He seems to have hired himself out to some of the captains who went about gathering fighters for hire, then striking a bargain with the various princes and powers at war. For in those days there were no standing armies and no conscription, and when the governments wanted to fight they had to raise what men they could hurriedly and at a fairly high pay. With whatever little capital he had got together in this dangerous trade he appears in the house of some big Italian money lenders of the day. Later on he returned to England and started on his own as a moneylender, on quite a large scale. But Thomas Cromwell was much more than a moneylender, even in those first years of his advancing manhood. He had got a hold of a good deal of law, and he had a fine grasp of detail in all business. Remarkable industry, lucidity of judgment, and rapidity of action. It was these which recommended him to the notice of the great Cardinal Wolsey, he appears as a sort of manager for Wolsey in unimportant affairs, and so gets richer and richer. Unfortunately for Cromwell's soul, and for the Catholic Church in England, and indeed throughout Christendom, he happened to come into Wolsey's employ just at the moment when the great cardinal was planning his new and splendid college at Oxford, which was to be something much bigger than the university had yet known. That college, by the way, is Christ Church, which is still the biggest college in Oxford, And when you go to Christ Church and visit Oxford, you can realize that it was planned by Cardinal Wolsey and it was built on the income taken from the monasteries that he had suppressed. Back to Belloc. In order to found this college, Wolsey had got the papal authority to suppress a certain number of small, decaying monasteries, draft the monks into larger houses of their orders, and use their revenues for this great establishment of his. In visiting the smaller monasteries, whose wealth was thus transferred to another kind of clerical use, Wolsey employed Thomas Cromwell, and it was in these visitations that Cromwell learned all the technique of visitation and inquiry and inventory, and all the rest of it, that he would use in the future. When Wolsey fell, after Henry's failure to obtain a divorce from Rome, Thomas Cromwell played a very clever game. He boldly sought an interview with the king— the details of which are, of course, hidden, but the results of which are clear, and of which Henry's cousin, Cardinal Pole has told us the essentials. He seems to have urged upon the king the policy of threatening the pope with schism unless the divorce were ultimately granted. And perhaps at the same time, he made the first suggestion to Henry VIII of looting the church. But, though he thus went over to the secret service of the king... He was not publicly admitted to be a royal servant until nearly three years later. He was not so foolish as to throw over Wolsey, his late master. In the first place, he knew very well that nothing would make him look more odious than ingratitude. In the next place, there was nothing to be gained by spurning the great man who had made his career, and in the third place, what I think decided him, he knew that Henry in his heart regretted the loss of Wolsey." The king had been compelled by Anne Boleyn to get rid of Wolsey, but he would send semi-privately messages to the fallen minister, and felt a continued real friendship for him, so it would never have paid Thomas Cromwell to have given Henry the impression that he, Cromwell, was Wolsey's enemy. However, Wolsey died soon after, and therefore that part of the problem was solved. Cromwell continued through the successive years of the divorce movement, that is, 1531, 1532, and 1533, to frame and urge the governmental policy and to increase the pressure on the Pope. He was, for instance, the author of that special piece of policy called the Annates Bill. The Annates were the first year's revenue of any bishop's see in England, which was paid over to the papal court as a tax. A new bishop, on being appointed to his diocese, paid over the first year's revenue in this fashion to Rome. Cromwell had a law made saying that the annates were to be henceforward payable not to Rome, but to the king, adding that whether this law should come into effect or not depended upon the king's good will. The object was, of course, to put an increasing strain upon the papal policy. If the annates had been confiscated, the papal treasury would have had no cause to bargain but with the threat of confiscation hanging over the Pope's head, it was hoped that he would prove amenable to Anne Boleyn's desire and pronounce Henry's marriage with Catherine null and void. In the same way, it was Thomas Cromwell who pushed through the final steps of the schism, ending with the decisive act of November 1534, when Henry was declared head in all things spiritual and temporal of the realm of England, with power to judge in all spiritual cases, and to define doctrine, and all the rest of it. Cromwell made of his master Henry a local pope, and how true this is, you can see, from the fact that Henry insisted on papal titles being given to himself. He called himself the vicar of Christ on earth, so far as the realm of England was concerned, and had formulas used to him which were the same as those hitherto used to the pope by those who addressed him in official letters. Thomas Cromwell, by the time all this was accomplished, that is, by the time Cranmer had pronounced the divorce between Henry and Catherine of Aragon, by the time Henry had married Anne Boleyn, by the time Anne Boleyn's child Elizabeth had been born and declared heir to the throne, was completely master of England and wholly controlled and managed Henry himself. Cromwell was not only the lay head of the country, a despotic minister with absolute power, doing what he willed, but he was also the spiritual head, for Henry delegated to him all his own spiritual power. And Cromwell exercised that spiritual power very thoroughly indeed. He made the bishops understand that they were nobodies compared with himself, and he sent his officials throughout their diocese adjudicating and settling and punishing and the rest as though he were a universal bishop whose power superseded that of all others. Yet all the time Cromwell was only a layman. Within a year of Cromwell's having worked the schism with Rome, that is, in 1535, he began two things side by side. One was a reign of terror, which was inaugurated by the arrest and at last the execution of very highly placed people, laymen and clerics, who withstood the schism. The other was the dissolution of the monasteries. It is with this last activity that Cromwell's name will always be chiefly associated, He was the direct author of the great orgy of loot, which follows thenceforward for the greater part of his lifetime, and his motive in this move was personal gain. The whole of his life had been devoted to acquiring wealth, usually by the basest means, and that sufficiently accounts for all that he did in the matter of the religious houses. The smaller houses accounted for barely a quarter of the monastic wealth of England. The whole thing was arranged after a fashion which testified highly to Cromwell's ability for it was so worked that things should lead on from one step to another until all the monastic and conventual life of England was totally destroyed. The first step was merely to make an inventory and to begin an examination into the alleged irregularities of certain houses. The next was to declare a policy of confiscation for the smaller houses, on the plea that they were generally badly managed and often corrupt. But while this was going on, There was no hint of attack on monasticism as a religious principle or on the monastic wealth as a whole. The heads of the great houses acquiesced in the movement. Monks and nuns from the smaller houses were drafted into the larger houses, and Cromwell gave it to be understood that the money taken from the suppressed small houses would be used for pious purposes. Then came the last step. No law was made compelling the surrender of the great houses like the law that had been made to compel the surrender of the smaller ones. Some were seized on the plea that they had been treasonable. In others, the abbot was heavily bribed to surrender his house peacefully to the king. In others, some charge of theft or other crime was trumped up against the ruling head of the establishment, till altogether, in one way or another, every single one of the great monastic houses of England was surrendered to the king and ceased to exist. A good example of what went on was the great abbot of Glastonbury in southwestern England. Abbot Richard Whiting was in charge, and when the deprivations began, he and two other monks took some of the treasures that belonged to the uh, monastery and hid them away from the king's agents who were coming through and taking everything. This was discovered, and Abbot Whiting was charged with theft, Uh, and he and his uh, treasurer and his prior uh, were taken to the top of Glastonbury Tor, a hill outside the town where they were hung, drawn, and quartered. The irony, of course, and the sadness is that they were simply hiding their own possessions away from the thieving hands of the king's agents, but they were the ones who were charged with theft and treason. Bella continues, The wealth did not stay in the king's hands, of course. Cromwell himself made a very large fortune out of the pickings. He gave no less than thirteen monastic estates to his nephew, and he gave land as benefactions right and left, as also did the king. Later on, much of the abbey lands thus confiscated were given away to favourites at the court, or what was very common were sold at half price or less. It is one of the commonest things for such of the so-called Reformation families as remain— that is, the English families whose wealth is founded on the loot of the church in the 16th century, to boast that they paid for their land honestly. But when you look into the details, you continually find that they got it for an average of 10 years' rent, a sum which was about half of the market price of the estates. Cromwell's motive in this gigantic economic revolution was merely loot, but the effect of which he did not directly intend, was to create a strong vested interest against any kind of reconciliation with Rome. The looted land was sold and resold. As time passed, families which had not been enriched married into families which had, and at last, pretty well, every landed family in England had been, as it were, bribed, not to admit England's being made Catholic again. Another little comment. If you've been watching the English series Downton Abbey, The reason it's called Downton Abbey is not because the family who lives there were monks or nuns in any way, but because the land on which the fictional family in Downton Abbey was built had originally been an abbey at that place. And uh, numerous big houses around England, like Downton Abbey, have the word abbey in their name, like Woburn Abbey and various others, because this is where they got the land. They got it from originally the monastic holdings. Bella continues... Even when Mary Tudor, long after Cromwell's death, proposed reconciliation with the papacy, the English upper classes refused to consider the idea unless the Pope would solemnly promise that they could keep their stolen lands, which the Pope reluctantly did. Even so, it was their possession of the abbey lands which determined all the position of the English gentry for a lifetime and made them determined to prevent the return of the mass to England. As an example of one of these families... "'Let me return to Thomas Cromwell's own nephew. "'Cromwell's sister married a young man, "'the son of another house keeper in Putney, "'called Williams Up Williams. "'She had a son, Henry, "'whom Thomas Cromwell took up and advanced, "'making him, before he died, "'entirely out of church loot, "'one of the wealthiest men in England. "'This nephew dropped the name of Williams "'for the name of Cromwell, "'established his son as a great magnate, with his principal seat built out of the ruins of a stolen nunnery at Hinchingbrook, and that son's grandson was the Oliver Cromwell of the next century. Thomas Cromwell thus ruled England, becoming one of the richest men in the country right until 1540. His power was, of course, very offensive to the old nobles, and even the new upstarts were jealous of him, but he feared nothing from them so long as he could manage the king, What broke down his hold over the king was a ludicrously simple incident. He overestimated his power and tried to make Henry, who had long ago put Anne Boleyn to death, and whose succeeding wife Jane Seymour had died, marry into one of the lesser German Protestant princes' families, that of the Duke of Cleves. Cromwell's foreign policy was not Protestant in any religious sense. He was, during all his active life, indifferent to religion altogether." but it paid him to tie Henry up with the Protestant princes of Germany if he could, so that there could be no going back upon the schism, and so that all his own vast fortune, built out of confiscated church lands and loot, would be secure. When Anne of Cleves came over to be married, Henry was disgusted by her. Always impulsive and weak as he was, he fell into a furious temper with Cromwell for having let him in for such a botheration as this unsuitable marriage. Meanwhile, the Howards, the heads of the older nobility and close connections by marriage of Henry's, were working ceaselessly against Cromwell's power, as was Henry's brother-in-law Seymour, the uncle of the little boy who would be the king's heir. I should take a minute here and explain that the little boy who would be the king's heir was his son Edward by Jane Seymour, the wife after Anne Boleyn, and she died in childbirth. What with Henry's raging bad temper at having been bamboozled into the Anne of Cleve's marriage, what with his irritation in feeling that Cromwell acted as though he were supreme in the state, and what with the Howards and the Seymours pushing the king on, the determination was taken to get rid of Cromwell at last, and in the early summer of 1540, when he was a man of well over 50 and at the height of his power and wealth, he was suddenly arrested at the council board. He was condemned to death by attainder without trial, and made the few days between the condemnation and the death sentence both pitiable and memorable by the imploring letters which he wrote to the king, begging and even screaming for life. He ended one of them with the famous cry, "'Mercy, mercy, mercy!' He fawned and cringed, using the most extraordinary phrases, comparing Henry to God and saying that the perfume of the royal hand would waft him to heaven if he were allowed to kiss it again. But it was all in vain. He was to die." and die he did on July twenty-eighth, 1540. Then, on the scaffold, a strange thing happened. Cromwell had the reputation of being perfectly indifferent to religion, an atheist concerned only with this world, and therefore utterly without scruple. He had supported the anti-Catholic movement with all his might because it made his loot secure. Now that he was about to die, he declared himself, to the astonishment of everybody, a firm adherent of the national and traditional faith, His sincerity had been doubted, but without sufficient grounds. I think the matter is clear enough. He had been horribly afraid of death all his life. He therefore would never contemplate death, and therefore also put religion out of his mind. But when he was face to face with death, and had to deal with it somehow, he admitted Catholic truth, and confessed his acceptance of it. The phenomenon is not uncommon, and is quite explicable by all that we know of the human mind and heart." Whether this last repentance saved him or not, we cannot tell, but his work was accomplished before his head fell. He had effected the breach with Rome, and by his loot and pillage of the church, he had made possible all the further steps by which England was transformed to a Protestant from a Catholic country, at the same time giving the whole governing class of England a strong financial motive for never allowing the mass to return to England if they could help it. That class which still has much of its old power, remains to this day the chief enemy of the Catholic Church in England. Thank you for listening to Characters of the Reformation. I hope you'll stop by my blog standing on my head to read my blog posts and listen to the rest of my podcasts. If you can support the blog and support the podcast's production costs by becoming a donor subscriber, then I invite you to do so. To do that, just click on the subscribe tab at the top of the home page. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by
0: Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.